Uh, this is weird. I am. I welcome everybody to the HP podcast. I don't know which camera to look at. We have with us here today, uh, Doctor Eric Ding, uh, epidemiologist. So I've been following you on Twitter for a long time. I'm not sure how I came upon your tweets, but ever since this whole virus uh, kind of story broke in Wuhan from the very origins, you were sounding the alarms. And I was very keen you, to everything you were saying. And I have to say, you you have to feel at least a little bit, um, vin I don't want to say vindicated because it's a horrible thing, but you were right, right? I mean, you were right. I know it, it's a bittersweet thing. Um, first of all, I'm, uh, I remember um, this thing, like it was, it's like a fog. Like, like I feel like we, our friends have been saying, like there's decades in which nothing happens, and then there's weeks in which decades happen. Mm -hmm. And I feel like January was like two years ago, and now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, it's like a total blur and I can't even like fathom like how we even got here and you know I feel like I've aged so much during that time and um, you know that's and along the way you know I remember when we were trying to shut down uh, well trying to petition to shut down Seattle um, comic-con right right I remember yeah that seems like ages ago <laughs> that was ages ago and people like, thought we were crazy yeah, and then now people are like, oh yeah, we better shut down everything in like ninety percent of the countries. Let me give some context. This was back in, gosh, I don't even remember. Uh, Seattle was like, hey, and it was in Seattle, which was like the origin of the coronavirus in the United States. Yeah. So, uh, Seattle Comic Con was like, hey guys, we know that there's this coronavirus thing, but we are gonna still do Comic Con. And and then I first saw it from you. You're like, this is insane. You guys have to cancel this. And then I quote tweeted it. And, it, you know, at the time, I, 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 I hear this kind of sentiment echoed a lot. And it's absolutely true. It's like, if you're on time, people say you're fear mongering. And if you're on time, you're way too late. Yeah. So how did you, as an early alarm, sounding the alarms way before most, I mean, how did you respond to people calling you a fear monger and uh, a hack and all these? It was, it was pretty rough because, like, first of all, I had, like, more inside details than just that one paper with a big R naught of 3.8, which, by the way, the latest review. Um, can, can you unpack that? What is 3.8? What, what does 3.8 mean? 3.8 is, like, the reproductive number. It means for every infected person, that person infects 3.8 additional people. And just for context, uh, the reproductive number of the common seasonal flu is 1.3. So 3.8 is like almost three times higher. And, but it's not just three times higher. It's remember, for every infected person, 3.8 additional people. So this is exponentially uh, much more than three times. Um, and so I... I knew this epidemic was happening in early January because I had relatives in China. I was originally born there, but I'm all American. But they tell me this is weird pneumonia. People are like dying, getting sick, and people are panicking. And it's like, it's a paranoia no one's ever like experienced before. And um, like when you hear that, you know, in China, lots of crazy things happen. But to, to hear that kind of thing, it's not normal. But, you know, you can't shout just based on these kind of anecdotes, right? Oh, that's so interesting. 
like, oh, uh, it's bad, but how bad? And so you're like grasping for like info, how bad? And then the, that paper came out, 3.8. And I'm like, whoa. But the problem is I, at that point, I only had like 2,000 followers on Twitter. I was never a big Twitter person. I have, I have actually have a 5.5 million person Facebook page for my cancer campaign. Mm. Um, wow. You know, I actually didn't, I actually think that Facebook is not the best medium. If you want to reach reporters and world leaders um, and influencers, you have to use Twitter. But my Twitter was like nothing. So I, I couldn't just whimper because most scientists, when they post on, on Twitter, they just whimper it. And um, it's like, oh, there's a suggestive evidence that there potentially could be a probability of a bubble. No, come on. No one's going to listen to that. And so I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a little crazy thread together. And it was like before, just before my bedtime, I saw this paper. I was like, <laughs> I did a big deep, you know, I got out of bed and I took a deep sigh and tapped it out. And during that time, I tapped out a few one post that was a little bit off because I misread another paper, but um, but I quickly deleted that. But the gist was, it's going to be really, really bad. And I knew it was going to be bad because like, I had this other data from China that no one else had, you know, because you, know, you we wouldn't find it on Twitter or, hmm. or American social media. It's only on Chinese social media that my cousins told me. And so, but then the people called me fear monger. It's a preprint. Uh, it's not peer reviewed yet, blah, blah, blah. You know, people were like trying to like fact check me or lane check. It's like, you're an epidemiologist, but you're not an infectious disease epidemiologist. Mm. So, and, so then, and, what, what, and then there's like, oh, you're a nutritionist. There. Right. But, you know, they, they fail to neglect that I actually have a PhD in epidemiology first. Which is a slam dunk. That's right up your lane. That is literally your lane. Yeah, it is. But <laughs> the thing is, they say, oh, he has a PhD in nutrition. Which is true too, because I got a second PhD in nutrition, and then I went to medical school. What PhDs this guy Because somewhere along the line, I realized, oh shit, I went off the deep end. Um, but you know, but people like also told like these half truths, like, oh, he's a nutritionist. Oh, he has no, th-. which is technically true, but they, they you know, it's kind of like when there's a lie and there's a half truth, and half truths are just as bad as a lie sometimes. So, well, welcome to Twitter. I will tell you. Hi. It's a, it's a hellhole, but it worked. I had a lot of pressure, and my people at Harvard were like, what the hell were you doing there? Right. And I was like, isn't it free speech? It's like, if I see smoke, I can shout. I can stand up and shout. I see there might be fire, guys. Mm. And there's clearly evidence of smoke, because even the WHO was concerned. And at that point, they hadn't declared emergency. So then my next agenda was like, declare a public health emergency of international concern. And that took like five days, but finally they did. So then finally, like people kind of woke up after that. But, oh, by the way, in the middle of that, between me tweeting that and uh, um, the WHO declaring, that's when all the insider trading among those senators happened. Mm. You know, because apparently they got a briefing around the 23rd or something. So, and they sold their stock on the 24th or 25th. And so I that, did it like just a few days earlier around the 20th. So you, as someone who understands the value of that information, they, they deny having insided traded. Can you say from the outside, they most definitely like how, how I can't say for sure. So it's, it's proven fact they had an ins, 
there's a special Senate confidential briefing mm. from like CDC and NIH um, leaders. So there was definitely a briefing. Mm. Now, the problem is like, it, it's hard to say whether they truly inside traded because hell, they could have read my tweet and then sold the stock. I, I don't know. And there's other people, there's other news. It's not like it's confidential news. It was just, it was just out there uh, in, in the, you just have to read the tea leaves to find it, right? And I doubt the senators. Yeah, they weren't tea that leaves savage. From China, yeah, per se. exactly. But but they did have a briefing, and so that's why it is a little suspicious. But anyways, before we get started with today's episode, it is brought to you by Omax Cryo Freeze. Living with chronic pain is the worst. It's more than a feeling of discomfort. It can affect your whole life. Many of my listeners probably have some type of pain that has been preventing them from relaxing, sleeping, or stopping them from exercising. Perhaps it's been going on for a few weeks now and hasn't improved with any treatment they've tried. Enter Omax Health. If you're looking to get rid of nagging muscle and joint pain immediately while providing long-lasting recovery, then you need to try the natural breakthrough pain relief solution CryoFreeze CBD roll-on developed by Omax Health. This non-prescription triple-action pain relief roll-on is specifically formulated to block pain receptors reduce inflammation, and improve muscle and joint flexibility. The best part is it's 100% natural, CBD-powered, a remedy that works its magic within 10 minutes of application and relief lasts up to eight hours, much longer than over-the-counter products. I'm a big fat guy and sometimes my knees hurt and I'll just take a little cryo, rub it into my knees, and it actually feels better. Oh, Max Health is offering my listeners 20% off a full bottle of cryo-free CBD pain relief roll-on plus Free shipping. This discount also applies towards any products site-wide. Just go to omaxhealth.com today and enter the code H3. That's O-M-A-X health.com and enter code H3 to get 20% off cryo-freeze and site-wide. Still not sold? I could tell you pro athletes such as PGA pro golfer Kyle Stanley use cryo-freeze CBD to recover both on and off the course. And go look at the product reviews. They've got over a 95% five-star rating on the page after page of customers saying they've tried it. And Omax CryoFreeze is so good, they're now buying it for their family and friends too. Anyone from athletes to Grandma Josie can benefit from this immediate pain relief. You have pain that won't go away, and you qualify for Omax CryoFreeze. Simply roll it over when it hurts and ice out the pain. No messy cream or horrible fragrance like some of these other products. CryoFreeze works within 10 minutes of application. Improving physical training, recovering performance. So go to omaxhealth.com and do code H3 and get 20% off cryo freeze and site wide. I'm telling you, this product is the real deal. So go to omaxhealth.com and enter code H3 to get 20% off site wide. Let's let's back up. We've got here a PhD uh, in epidemiology, which is right up your lane. I mean, epidemiology is the study of epidemics, right? It's 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 about viruses. How do you end up in that lane? How did I end up in that? Well, I was a normal kid who played a lot of video games as a kid. Um, I graduated when I was 18. Um, but when I was 17 years old, they actually d discovered a tumor the size of a baseball. And so it took out like several organs. It took out my thymus, part of my outer sheath of my heart, and part of my right lung because they wow. thought I had this big cancer. And, and at first they thought I had literally was going to die in five years because it was, um, it was a, they thought it was a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is pretty terminal. 
Mm. Luckily, it wasn't, but it, like mm. it jolted me awake that God, I got to stop being this video gamer, eighteen-year-old <laughs> kid, and actually do something with my life. Um, now that I got a second chance at life, and so I said, I'm going to go to medical school. So I went to Hopkins. Um, but first year, I fell in love with this thing called epidemiology. It was fascinating. You can like look at patterns of disease, and you can statistically adjust for lots of different things to get the causal effect of things. I was like, you know what? I'm going to put medical school on the side for pause. I'm going to go get my PhD in epidemiology. So I entered Harvard as one of the youngest students in, in my doctoral program. And then along the way, they um, a year into it, they're like, hey, you want to do another one in nutrition? It's like, um, is that a lot more work? Yeah, it's the double the work. But you know, it's, it's free. It's, it's, it's no extra tuition. I was like, sure, why not? And then um, long story short, yeah, I fell in love with both. I I wasn't an infectious disease epidemiologist. I was a cancer and diabetes epidemiologist, but mm. it's it's still huge amounts of data. And along the way, I was a whistleblower against Vioxx, the drug that was sold and killed a lot of people. Um, it was a billion-dollar Merck drug, and we showed that Merck knew about it. And and then I said, I want to graduate. And they're like, you're kidding me. You're 23 years old. And like most people do one of these doctoral programs in five years. You're doing two of two of them in two, in two and a half years. I was like, yeah. And I eventually had to convince my, my advisor, my second advisor, and the department chair, both epidemiology and nutrition to let me graduate. So I finished both my PhDs in two and a half years and when I was 23 years old. And so this is me. Remember, I thought I only had five years to live kind of mentality. So, uh, so this is like, but I've always been kind of like chasing, like whether it's like this Vioxx whistleblowing because they knew, Merck knew about the danger of the Vioxx several wow. years. It was before it was pulled off the market, but they kept selling it. And, oh um, and if you look at the tea leaves, you know, if you flip one coin for five coins and it's all heads, maybe it's by chance. But if you flip like 20 coins and they're all consistently heads, you know there's something wrong, right? Mm. And it's kind of like that intuition when you see all that data going the wrong direction. You know, see that. And that's kind of like me. I'm, I'm a really curious guy. And I dug into that kind of thing. And um, so let me let me ask you about the. Um, uh, I, I it, it, this is so you're in such a unique position to comment this as someone who knows people in China and is a PhD in epidemiology. So I want to start first of all. Let's talk about wet markets. Okay, so we're often hearing that wet mar a wet market was the origin of this uh, novel coronavirus. First of all, can you explain to me uh, what is a wet market? Wet market is something you don't have in the states. It's basically a market where you buy live animals. Like live chickens, live uh, ducks, or live eels. Yeah, to eat. Like mm. instead of like going to a grocery store and there's a Purdue chicken that's like you know chill air chilled in this plastic packaging. There is a chicken. You grab it by a neck. Oh, you want this chicken? Okay, they cut its head off and you and they wow. pluck off the feathers and then you take it home. So what is so dangerous about these wet markets? Yeah, because you're literally like cutting off chickens' heads and cutting off like, you know, you're literally slaughterhouse. It's like a live slaughterhouse in front of you. It's like, I would like three eels, two ducks, and this, you know, this other weird animal that whatever it is that they're trading. 
pangolins or something. Um, and so it's literally a live slaughterhouse and they slaughter the animals in front, in front of you, mm -hmm. whether it's fish or these uh, other uh, farm animals. And so it's a very different thing where most Americans can't even imagine. It's very bloody. It's very nasty. It's just, it's just how it is. It's, it's fresh on the market, literally. So why, what, is so, what is so dangerous about these wet markets? Are they responsible for breeding, for example, the coronavirus and, yeah, other, it's and other viruses? Um, first of all, um, there's a lot of fecal matter. You know, the animals that are there, they poop. And poop carries a lot of viruses. And, um, and of course, you're exchanging animals. They're like penned up together. They're not... It's not like a zoo where all these animals have space to roam. They're literally locked in cages and, um, or just thrown in uh, big cages altogether. So they are basically really close together, animals to animals, and people are grabbing them. You know, sometimes you chase around the chicken trying to catch one, and you grab one, and you're trying to like, oh, you want this one? No, I want that one. And you pick, put it down, you pick up another one. And so it's, you're literally touching all these different animals. Mm -hmm. And this is what allows potentially a, you know, a virus to jump between, you know, a, you know, a bat and a chicken and a, mm. you know, a duck and some frogs mm. and then jump to you. And so it is a, it's a circus. So that's why it's very plausible it came from there. At the same time, you know, who knows? It, in China, it could literally come from anywhere because the population density is just so high and people go out in, into the wilderness to hunt and bring back food as well. So, so do you think that these wet markets should be shut down by China or do you think that it's just kind of a fact of life over there? Uh, what's the solution here? So common, like they are shutting them down, but um, it's, it, it, it is really hard to enforce, you know, because what, what, it's probably like getting into like a gun topic here, like, right? It's well, such a part of the culture, probably. Right, and well, what I've heard is that the wet market industry, like you were saying, it's hard for Americans to fathom, but there, it's like a, you know, several hundred billion dollar industry there that provides food to like a large percent of the population of China because there's just so many people to feed. So it's not something that you can easily just shut off. It's not some. It's not a, like a a pastime. It's actually people need these these wet markets to eat because there's so many people there. Yeah, there is. And grocery stores and um, it's not what you imagine. It's not Whole Foods. It's not even like Giant or Stop a Safeway. It's 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 a very different world. Mm. So I think food to sanitation hygiene. It's a different culture. You know, it's. So is it not? It's naive, in 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 other words, for for us Westerners to start demanding China to close you down. You have to realize, for example, China has half the uh, farmland as the U.S., but it has four times the population. So every square inch of land, every acre, has to feed instead of one person in the U.S. has to feed eight people in China for the same amount of farmland, and there's. And so farming intensity is incredibly dense. Um, it's just, and you have to feed these urban centers. And Wuhan as a city would probably be like be the second largest city in America right now, you know. And, but in China, it's just a you know, medium-sized city. 
that's uh, yeah so i think i think that's something interesting to keep in mind is just how different it is you know um the wet market sounds like a terrible place honestly for me i think if i walked there i'd be i would be horrified but uh it's just a fact of life over there um so what what about this thing people keep saying it came from bats is there any uh truth to that did the coronavirus come from a dude eating bat soup <laughs> No, it doesn't come from bat soup because you can't eat it from a, get it from a soup. You know, first of all, the soup by definition kills the viruses because it's cooked. Um, because the, this virus degrades very easily in heat um, and humidity. The issue is it, it's similar to the bat, but at the same time, you could, you could it's more like a cousin of the bat. So a cousin means like there's there's a common ancestor in which from it diverged, right? Like you're related to your cousin, not from your mom, but from your grandmother. So the issue is who's, who's this grandparent species that it jumped from? And you can tell by the, how viruses evolved. This is actually, by the way, how we know that um, in Washington state, um, when the outbreak finally was discovered, not just the first case, but the outbreak, they realized it actually was derived from that same case and you know that cruise ship off the coast of California? Hmm. That cruise ship was also derived from the Washington case because you could see how it derived. It, it hmm. came from the cruise ship. Uh, the cruise ship came from the Washington State case, not from another one of the uh, new cases from... Uh, so it was already here. It was already here. And you can tell by the evolutionary lineage. So the evolutionary lineage showed that, yes, it's close to the bat, but there's many... We, we need to find a direct uh, ancestor, and we still have not found the direct an uh, ancestor yet. Maybe oh. if we just hunt for more bats, eventually we'll find it, but we haven't found it yet. And, and to really like disprove any conspiracy theories um, about you know, bioengineering, the, the ultimate, the holy grail is to find this immediate ancestor. Mm. Um, and sometimes so, well, it takes time. To, to, like for to, MERS, uh, they thought it came from... Uh, from camels or something but then like two years later they eventually found that it actually came from jordan from a different species of animals um the cannibals was just a cam camels just a reservoir but you need to find a direct ancestor not the cousin of an ancestor you know? mm. and the bats are like right now the closest bat version is a cousin of it i see direct ancestor. and so what i think you touched on there briefly is that in wuhan there is an institute institute of virology there and there are conspiracy theories that claim that this virus is potentially man-made. As a weapon? As a, well, as it could have been as a weapon. It could have just, someone there accidentally got infected. It was an accident. And then, you know, so, so is there any credence to, uh, to that? There's just as much as that as it was aliens. Uh, like, there, there's no proof. Like, there, it's like circumstantial evidence. Like, um... You murdered someone because you were attending the same party in which this person disappeared from. It's like, well, there's a hundred, there's hundreds of people who were also there. Just because yeah. I was there, also there, doesn't mean that I just because I was near at attending the same ball ballroom uh, party that I was. You know, it, it, circumstantial is, is is not admissible in the court of law. And again, it is in China. It's such a high density of things 
you know. That's not even know, the most probable. It's not even, like, Wuhan is a major city. It has the biggest wet markets. And it's one of the most industrial centers. It's also where a lot of pharmaceutical companies are, are also made. And it's an industrial heartland. And that's why they also had this ma major institute of virology there. You know, if, if for some reason, like, if this was, like, in Tibet, and this epidemic started in this teeny tiny corner of remote Tibet and owned the virology institute is also in that part of remote Tibet, maybe. But this is like Wuhan is like everything's in, it's like New York City. Every, There's like a me 11 million people uh, live there, right? Yeah, exactly. So when you and think about like the, a city the size of New York, it's like, well, of course, there's an institute of virology in the city of New York. It's a huge yeah. city. It's, it's not a big deal because like there's yeah. so many things in New York and so many things in D.C. and so many things. Again, I think it I think it really just comes from. From not understanding China, it's the same thing as this wet market. It's hard to imagine. It's just such a different world. It seems like out there. Right. Um, and again, it, there's there's but no you're saying there's a chance. So <laughs> I'm not say, I'm saying there's just as much a chance as some aliens like there is things we haven't solved like. Um, and again, I am absolutely not a conspiracy theorist. Like there is years ago, someone did engineer um, the old SARS one, you know, the, two, in the SARS epidemic 2003. Um, the, in 2009 or 2010, in a Proceedings of National Academy of Science, a major journal, someone did insert a few like uh, mutations just for fun to see if they could make the old SARS more virulent. And they did. And um, and it, this mutation they inserted was a furin mutation. And, uh, and so the old SARS never had it. But the, somehow the new SARS has one. And so the question is, how did that one get there? And so what we need to find is the animal that carried it. And it's very easy to, like, uh, have these mutations. You know, they're just like a few amino acid. It's very natural. It can easily happen. But again... We kind of need to find the, the host animal that was a direct ancestor of it to really put it away. But again, I don't, at this point right now, it's, it's almost moot. Um, right. Like, you know, it's a pandemic. It's killing everybody in every single country. And I think, um, you know, we'll let the virologists duke it out. And there's no point speculating or chasing it because there's, no. there's no other evidence. There's no evidence in any way or shape or form whatsoever. And it's kind of pointless to argue it. So I am, I'm absolutely, absolutely for the last time against any conspiracy theories. And I think it's a waste of time to you know, over it. give it more air. Let me ask you this. How does a bat, how does like, let's say a bat give a human a virus? Is it like breath? It Is poops. it breathing? Poop. poop. So poop. some, so someone, someone. You touch and, and it, poop. And, and then, and then. He touched his mouth or something like that. Yeah, and then you go, you know, you pick your nose. And <laughs> that would they? And then, and so, eyes. I don't and, know. And, and is that true? How is that true? Also, of other when new um, viruses enter, like cross. Yeah, cross. it's very common. It's yeah, all for example. It's poop, someone it's did just a study poop. in bats, hmm. and, and people who are actually in in contact with bats. There's remote villages that are very close to these bat caves. Okay, um, and they thought like, oh, and they discovered like these bats had like hundreds of viruses and they're like what's the chance that it jumped into these villages that are adjacent to them and someone did an experiment and they realized these people were carrying like dozens and dozens of these coronaviruses and other viruses that mm. these these bats were carrying and um 
and it, it just so happened that most of them were mild viruses, right? Mm. Or just kind of inert and you just carry it. Um, and so in, in some ways, like that just proves like we just found like a remote village that had hundreds, of, uh, dozens or hundreds of these bat uh, viruses that exist in bat population. And these people were living with it. Uh, it just so happened it didn't kill them at a high rate. So, so and that just case... supports the fact that it probably came from another animal. Uh, and it's just this one luck, unlucky virus hit us. And is this, is this particular virus, the COVID-19, is this a particular malicious virus? Does this kind of transmission, in other words, does this kind of transmission happen fairly commonly? And this is just the rare exception where it's actually quite uh, deadly and contagious, or is this a rare occurrence? This is the exception because as I was saying, like they found so many other viruses that these people in these villages next to these, cave, uh, these bat caves were having. Um, it, it just literally, you know, this wet market's been around for, you know, years, for, you know, decades. And it just finally, we got unlucky and one of a really bad one jumped mm. from animals to humans and, um, Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle. Yeah. So what happens if, let's say, there's a lot of talk in the United States, uh, it kind of comes and goes, but. There's a lot of politicians because it's easy to look at the economy. And when when the world shuts down, it's easy to see the immediate damage and impact of shutting the whole economy down. I mean, just for for example, today, another 6.6 million people uh, claimed uh, uh, unemployment for a total. I think there's like 10 percent now. The official number is it's probably much higher than that of unemployment in the United States. So it's easy to look at that and say, as Trump and his some of his associates say is we can't let the cure be worse than the disease which is i've heard that phrase used around yeah. when it comes to chemotherapy and stuff like that so they're kind of they're kind of uh comparing it to like uh you know some kind of barbaric cure what is what does it look like if we just say you know what it's got a 2% mortality rate let's just continue living let it do its thing. We've lived with the flu. This isn't much worse than the flu. Let's just, like, it's just not worth shutting down the let world. Let it go. Just let wild. it do its thing. Yeah. So yeah. what does that look like? How bad is that? Yeah. Yeah. And this argument, by the way, first of all, oh, it's, you either destroy the economy or just, you know, kill a lot of people. I don't, I don't think it's like an either or a black and white thing. Uh, and I'll explain why. So first of all, if you let it just, do its course and let nature have its way with us without doing any containment mitigation or lockdowns or whatsoever. You know, it's not just the deaths. Um, by the way, it's 2% deaths if you are treated and keep it contained. But, the, you know, the death, this mortality, this case mortality ratio, it's not a set amount, you know. It, it, basically what happens is that, um, you know, if you don't treat anyone, with ventilators, right? If a country has no ventilators like Iran, you're gonna have really, really high mortality. Or if you run out of ventilators, that you're out of, you're over capacity, you're out of oxygen tanks, which by the way, a lot of these hospitals are also running low on oxygen tanks for all these mm -hmm. patients. Um, then those people will die. And so 
but if you keep it in check and you and you have be able to treat enough people then it's lower so and what happened is like you know italy is approaching like nine ten percent mortality and same wow. in like france um and the reason is they're just completely swamped you know this is a flatten the curve thing they're completely over health hospital capacity and any excess is well we're out of ventilators you die um and even ventilators by the way is not enough um so it is quite an insidious infection if you had if you had to guess before modern science if this kind of virus swept through let's say 300 years ago what kind of mortality rate would we would we be looking at we'll probably have like you know, 15, 15, 20%. Wow. So that is, that is. Well, because look, a lot of people have shortness of breath, right? And right now, a lot of the shortness of breath can be ameliorated by oxygen. Um, uh, There's oxygen like in a mask and there's oxygen like up your nose, right? Up your nose, down, down directly. Um, And then, you know, there's intubation. And then we have ECMO machines, which is extracorporeal, which means outside of your body, um, membrane oxygenation. It's like kidney dialysis, but instead of dialysis, it's to give you oxygen in your blood. So, you know, instead of cleaning your blood, it's to give your oxygen blood outside into a machine and then puts it back inside of you. Mm, that's pretty insane. Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty high yeah. tech. And most hospitals only have like a few, if, if at all. Rural hospitals don't have any. Um, and they're really expensive and really labor intensive to, to maintain to, for, for someone to use it. So again, we have all this modern medicine. Um, sometimes we can't treat, we can treat the symptoms, but we can at least prolong people's lives. And, um, yeah, long time ago, if it's just, you know, we would just like destroy a lot. This is what kind of the bubonic plague was the black death plague. Wow. So you think it's... So you, you put this on the same level of not on the exact same level, not on the same same level. But I what I'm saying is Unchecked. remember the, the the Spanish flu, which is not really Spanish. It just they just Spain did the best testing and they found it. The the the, the flu influenza of 1918, the one right. that ravaged the world during the middle of World War One, it killed like millions and millions and millions of people. Um, think up to like double digit millions in the teens um yeah but you know in the middle of world war uh one uh, there's not much it was like a lost signal yeah but this could easily be like that um and again also it maims a lot of people like they're they're scarred and these people who are on ventilators some of them for like four weeks in china and here in the states as well like it's there like disabled for a long time it takes a lot of time for them to recover and so i want you to think about this a it will kill a lot of people not not just two percent but above five percent maybe ten percent if you just let it just blow through a population Mm. um it'll disable and maim a lot of people like you know they there's they'll they'll be so weak that they won't be able to go to work right and again it's not just old people like in the CDC report just last week, compared to someone with no risk factors, someone with diabetes has 17-fold higher odds of being admitted to the ICU. Mm. A diabetic person has seven. A diabetic person who gets infected versus a non-diabetic person, like healthy, 17 higher-fold chance 
of being admitted to the ICU. That's insane. That's larger than smoking causes uh, lung cancer. Mm. You know, that's more than uh, obesity causes diabetes. That's seven, uh, re- you know, odds ratio of 17, relative risk of 17 is just off the charts. Very and, dangerous for and, people And so this is also the problem. Yeah. Like in the South right now, you know, the South is known for the stroke belt, a lot of diabetes. Um, their mortality is much higher, even in young people than compared to like the young young adult mortality in like other New England states or Colorado. Young adult mortality in, in the South is right, really high. And it's, it's because that, that there's so many other comorbidities, you know, you know, COPD, asthma, smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure is also a major killer of COVID, um, of COVID patients, heart disease. If you add them up, between anyone who, uh, who has either asthma, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, heart, you know, kidney damage, liver disease, you know, any sort of emphysema or any sort of any of these diseases, uh, and now who's left? Who's, who doesn't have it? In the U.S., especially in the deep South, that's not many people left. Everyone, almost everyone in the deep South, uh, like I'm not saying everyone, but a large majority, I'd say more than 50%, maybe even two thirds, have one of these risk factors mm-hmm. that will put them in severe uh, debilitating state in ICU at, at best. And so now to answer your question, well, what will happen? A lot of people will die. A lot of people will also completely over overswarm the hospitals and be on ventilators for like weeks and weeks because actually in certain ways someone who enters a hospital and dies immediately or someone who never enters the hospital and dies at home costs almost no money right but someone who's in the icu hospitalized in a bed for like weeks and weeks and weeks you, you know hospital bills yeah. and lots of the hospital bills and then the hospital beds and then if you have a heart attack or if you had a stroke and you need to go to the ER and you need to get emergency surgery, bypass surgery or some, other, uh, or some other major procedure to save your life, but the ER is full, guess what? You're going to die too, even though you don't have COVID, mm-hmm. right? If you have a diabetic blood sugar emergency, asthma, allergy emergency, any sort of opioid overdose, you're going to die too because the ER and the hospital beds are full. And this is the problem it will literally, A, directly kill because of the virus and your risk factors that puts you a high chance of dying or being debilitated, but also kill people who don't even have the virus at all, but they'll die of cancer, heart attacks, strokes, over, drug overdoses. It sounds like such a terrifying hellscape that once it starts ravaging, then people are going to be so uh, terrified and scared to go outside the economy is going to be shutting down even worse. Exactly. So my answer is, it's not you're choosing between saving lives and saving the economy. Saving lives will also save the economy. Because There's only one way keeping out. Keeping them home and keeping them relatively healthy at home until this thing is over, right? Because you're so basically, words, you know, there's a hurricane outside. You either throw everyone in the hurricane and let half of them get, you know, killed by a flying, uh, you know, branch. <laughs> or you keep everyone inside until the storm is over. Right. And then, you know, you, they can go back to work. And so this, this premise that we hear 
is 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 in your opinion a, a not a true prem, not an accurate premise at all. It's it's, it's one. There's only off. one way out, really, which is guys, to defeat the virus. On that, uh, on this very uplifting note, uh, we're we're past our break time, so let's uh, take a quick break and we can jump right back in. All righty. So we will be right back with Dr. Eric Dane. We will continue our discussion about COVID nineteen and all things virus here on the H three podcast. Thank you to Stamps.com for sponsoring this episode. For all of our sake, we must be avoiding crowds. Now you have a better excuse than ever to be using Stamps.com. Why go to the post office and catch coronavirus when you can do it online at Stamps.com? Forget, I mean, you know, that's in addition to the discounts and the money saving that you'll get through stamps.com. You can print postage on demand, skip lines, crowds. It's much more convenient. And also you will survive. Survival above all. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer and the safety and comfort of your home, office, or anywhere else you are hunkering down right now. Whether you're a small business sending invoices or an online seller shipping out product, or you're just working from home and need to mail stuff, stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, you just leave it for your mail carrier, schedule a free pickup, uh, or drop it off in the mailbox. No human contact is required. It's that simple. And like I said, with Stamps.com, you get great discounts too. That's five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off USPS shipping rates. That was not part of the copy read. That was my own ad lib. And now, in addition to offering discounted U.S. Postal Service rates, Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discount rates up to 62%. Whoa. Plus, with Stamps.com, you won't even have to pay UPS residual surcharge. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, especially now, saving you time and money and keeping you safe in these crazy times. So, for our listeners, go to... Uh, to get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment, just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in H3. That's stamps.com. Enter H3. Stay safe, my friends, with stamps.com. You know I love that Quip electric toothbrush. Quip, the makers of the Quip electric toothbrush, want you to know the one single discovery that matters the most for your dental care. It is simply this, that if you have good habits, you are good. That means that brushing for two minutes twice a day and flossing regularly, no matter what brand you use, Quip makes it simple, starting with an electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and anti cavity toothpaste quips electric brush has a sensitive sonic vibration with a built-in timer and 30 second pulses to guide a full and even clean the quip floss dispenser comes with pre-marked string to help you use just enough plus quip delivers fresh brush heads flush flosh floss and toothpaste refills to your door every three months with free shipping so your routine is always right and your mouth is always freaking clean Join over 3 million healthy mouths and get Quip today, starting at $25 only. This is the way to go. The Quip electric toothbrush, I'm just going to give you my personal endorsement right now. I don't use any other toothbrush because the bristles are soft. I made a rubber, gentle my gums. Gives me a perfect brush. It tells me exactly how long I need to brush. 
It's 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 the best brush in the game. And at $25, you're not going to find a better brush. They got a special offer. If you go to getquip.com slash H3 right now, you'll get your first refill for free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash H3 spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash H3. That's Quip, the good habits company. All right. So we are uh, we are back with Dr. Uh, Eric Ding here with us. I keep looking between the cameras. It's so unusual. Yeah, it's so this is my first Zoom interview. So, <laughs> um, so we were just we were talking uh, about the false premise of we can fix the economy and the virus. It doesn't seem like that is an option. And the the way you described it is actually even worse than I imagined. <laughs> it's I, I and and well, people have been saying from from the very beginning. Well. You know, our, our 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 very own president only I don't know like seems like years ago now, but was I don't know if it was a month or even less said that uh, you know the flu kills fifty thousand people a year. We don't we don't even worry about that. This is not this isn't even as bad as the flu. What uh, what do you what do you how do you react when you hear people saying that you know it's just the flu it's here, just guys? The flu. Oh, that line. Ugh. Here. Mm-hmm. I have 10 different points. First, well, I think what we just spoke about pretty much shut that point down. But yeah. Well, first of all, here's the differences. Uh, we already talked about reproductive number. The flu has a 1.3 reproductive number. Um, and this one has anywhere between 2 and 4. You know, And there's a new study that just said it was a 5.7. Wow. So it's hot. Let's just say it's, way, it's, it's at least twice, if not three times higher in reproductive coefficient. Um, and again, for every cycle, instead of 1.3 additional people, it's three additional people. So it spreads much faster. Um, the flu. Many of you actually have background immunity because you've had the flu before. You've had a, a related cousin of, the, of that this year's strain. So you, you have some partial immunity. Um, the flu, also you have a vaccine. Now, it's not perfect every year because the flu mutates really fast. This is why it's hard. We have to have a new vaccine every year. But at least it's 50% effective this year. Most years, it's like 75 80% effective. Mm. So that's a huge difference. That's three points of difference right there. The flu has a mortality of 0.1. Mm. This one, if it's contained, has a mortality of at least 1%, um, if not 2 to 3%. And if it's uncontained, you know, in a runaway situation, it will go way above 3%. And again, even 1% means it's 10 times deadlier. 3% means 30 times deadlier. Um, and, and the other thing is the flu uh, does not spread asymptomatically, which means before you even have symptoms, it's not a worry. And neither would did the old SARS. So for example, if you flew on a plane, you felt perfectly healthy, and two days later, um, you know, fly into LA to do a, your, your interview, and then uh, you, know, you feel sick, you would only have to quarantine those around you when you were sick, not everyone on the plane or at the airport when you are still healthy. The problem with this virus is it spreads even when you have no symptoms. So even when you thought you were healthy and you're, and you're coughing or just spitting when you talk, everyone spits when they talk, you're actually transmitting the virus to other people. Again, some people are much more susceptible. So this, and apparently now that it seems that at least there's at least 25% of the people 
who are completely asymptomatic. In Iceland, which is the king of testing for this, mm-hmm. just, just for comparison, Iceland tests 5,000 tests per 100,000 people. The U.S. does about three, 400 tests per 100,000 people. Wow. We're, we're at least tenfold lower than Iceland. And so, and there wow. they discovered that um, 50% of the people, when they detect, test so many people, 50% of the people are asymptomatic, wow. which means this virus is literally spreading. Again, we know it's spreading asymptomatically. It's spreading silently in our population. Um, and the flu, we also have treatment. Tamiflu, we have many other known treatments or drugs for the flu. For this one, up until now, we have no proven treatments that really, really work yet, that we know for sure works and know how much it works. How long does it take to develop a treatment? Like, it depends on what kind of treatment. Uh, there's existing drugs, which, you know, we'll get to hydroxychloroquine. Um, and there's other drugs like uh, for HIV and hepatitis C, for other viruses that we're testing. There we, and we have some hope that because they're already on the market, we just have to retest it for this one, as opposed to developing a brand new drug that takes longer. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why the vaccine takes longer because the vaccine you have to go through the early safety testing and then the um, efficacy testing and then you know but now for the existing drugs you can just test oh we know it's safe mm-hmm. let's just test it for if it prevents right. COVID death so you know we for remdesivir uh, the drug we might get results in like two three weeks that said it is a lot of these hepatitis C and HIV drugs are really expensive. Um, and that's the problem. Um, so we still have, and hydroxychloroquine, it's cheaper, but it's very limited supply. It's originally only for people with malaria, which almost no one in America has, or lupus, which is really rare. Um, so we don't have enough supplies of them, and they have extreme side effects, which again, some people are very, very susceptible. Some people are, are fine, but we need to know, like, does the known extreme side effects outweigh the, the benefits for it? Um, so we'll hopefully have drugs much faster than we'll have, um, have vaccines. And you know, one of the things I'm trying to work on is actually trying to speed up the drugs. There are, there are a lot of bureaucratic loopholes. Like right now, the fastest thing you can do to find a drug is, hey, all you doctors and uh, seeing hundreds of patients in New York City, I'm going to give you guys, you guys have like literally like thousands of patients a day, right? I'm going to give you guys uh, this drug and give you guys a placebo randomly. And then in, in one week, two weeks max, you will be able to tell me if the drug works. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, if we had a drug that's already on the market, let's just say vitamin D, that's what I would do because vitamin D prevents cytokine storm uh, for other uh, pneumonias. Um, I would do that. But to actually carry out that trial, there is like a boatload of bureaucracy. Now, they're, they're valid. They, they need to go through the FDA, go through the in- Institutional Review Board. You have to pay the fees to the hospitals and the universities. You have to, uh, and then you have to wait, get wait for clearance. Are we not tearing down the liability? And if the patients get sick under your watch as a while doing a trial, technically the trial has to pay for it. But all these red tape could be just cut 
you know, they're, they're already in the hospital anyways. Right. Mm-hmm. If they waive all of these requirements, right. speed up their approval, and New York does not have to wait for FDA, theoretically, you could do it much, much faster. That's good. Right. Um, like, and we need to example, be doing that now. You know, the federal government says marijuana is illegal, right? Um, but a lot of states says it's, it's okay. So there's many states in which it conflicts with federal law. Federal law says it's illegal. State says, no, it's fine. And if New York did that and basically started waiving a lot of these requirements, you could easily get, uh, um, uh, you could easily get uh, trials done very fast. And then if you told hospitals, stop charging fees. All you doctors are on the front, front lines. Make it part of your job to test these drugs. It would literally, we could get results in under three, four weeks, theoretically. That, I'm very fascinated by this whole issue with COVID-19, that it's able to transmit during this incubation period when you're asymptomatic. Yeah. Is, yeah. That, is that rare? I mean, how does that work? Is this something that, you've, that you see commonly? Yeah, is, it's, it's really common. It's well-established. Oh. Um, we saw it happening in January and February, and, uh, but now there's like a mountain of evidence. I think there's like 10 studies that confirms this now. It, it's, it is like, but do you see this? Even, it's not even a hypothesis anymore. It's confirmed. That, this is why CDC recommends max. In other words, in other words, how how rare is this quality in viruses? Because it, it seems so insidious. It seems to make a virus yeah. so much more dangerous. How common it's, is this? It's, it's a rare thing. Not many. The old SARS did not have it. The flu generally doesn't have it. There are some that have has it, but um, I don't think it's it, it's it's not common. So it's just makes- it's just somehow very infectious. It's more of a property of of some viruses like um, like like Ebola or uh, the old SARS, you only got sick from someone if they are extremely, extremely, extremely sick. And mm. then they cough on you with a very high viral load mm. in their very extreme sick state, then you'll get it. Mm. In this state, people have a viral load and they're shedding it, all, uh, shedding these viruses from the body <coughs> all the time. And it seems that you catch a little bit of it from a mildly sick person or asymptomatic person, you will get it. It just seems that the virus particle just hooks on much faster. And there's some evidence that basically um, this virus uh, binds binds the receptors in your lung much with a stronger affinity. It's like a a stickier, much stickier glue, right? So if it's a much stickier glue, you only need much fewer particles um, to really induce something. You know, we don't know the exact dynamics, but we know it's much infectious. And the other thing with incubation is, you know how they always say, isolate yourself, quarantine for 14 days? Well, that was based on an early study in China, but they did a reanalysis of some other things. And one study says one in 100 people will have an incubation period longer than 14 days, which incubation is from the time you get infected to the time you show symptoms and know that you are sick, it's longer than 14 days. And the point of the quarantine period is that if we're not sure if you're sick, if you were in close contact with a friend who was sick, you're quarantined for 14 days. If you don't show symptoms, hey, you're okay. You're in the clear. Without even doing a test, you're in the clear. But there's a lot of people who basically 
get sick much longer outside of a 14-day window. And this other study said 12% of people who are infected develop symptoms beyond the 14 days. Mm-hmm. So you and think that is a quarantine damn problem. Sh- right. Yeah. You think, so what do you think the quarantine should be? I mean, can, how can we start quarantining people for like 30 days? That seems so That's insane. Yeah. Like just some people are saying 16, 18. Some people are saying just 21 a little extra, days. Right. Yeah. It, it's just, it's the problem is like, for example, that the first California case mm-hmm. at UC Davis, that person who was transferred back and forth and, you know, finally got her test after like a long, arduous argument. Um, she got her, tested positive finally in the ICU, but by then she like 120 UC Davis healthcare workers had to be like put out of commission for two weeks because they were in close contact without masks and everything. And many of them did come down with the virus. Wow. So this 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 thing is. Uh, you know, it's serious. Like the other key example is, you know, the remember the Diamond Princess ship off of Japan. I like to tell people this, this anecdote: the Japanese quarantine officer. He's a quarantine officer. He knows about infections. He's just he goes on the ship to inspect. On there for a few hours, comes off the ship. A few days later, test positive. He's a quarantine officer, right? And he knows how to take care of himself and protect himself. Test positive. Another Japanese firefighter who's transporting really sick passengers to the hospital from the ship to the hospital was was protected. After moving, transporting them, he tests positive, uh, even though he was protected. Is this one of the most uh, contagious diseases you've ever come across? It's pretty contagious. Look, measles is more contagious. Um, measles has an R not like above ten. Wow. Okay. So there's a whole nother stratosphere. But the difference is most of us are immune because we have a vaccine for it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in actuality, it's in today, it's not as dangerous. You know, if, it, if we had no vaccine for it and we had no immunity to it, it would be definitely de- more dangerous. But we have a vaccine and we, most of us have immunity. Um, oh, side note, for all those who are thinking about na- not taking the measles vaccine, um, here's a little interesting factoid for you. Um, unlike other infections, so w- normally if you, you know, get the flu or a common cold, your body remembers it. Your body has memory B cells. So next time I see it, I recognize it. Aha, I'm going to go into my memory B cell archive, bring out the antigen that recognizes it and attack it right away and you won't get sick. And this is what immunity is, right? Um, Ah, I've seen this virus before. My body's built up resistance, attack. So all these like uh, memory B cells hold all these old viruses that you've previously fought off. Hundreds, if not thousands of viruses that you've had ever since you're a kid to your adulthood. Probably had been sick, you know, with hundreds of viruses. Well, if you get measles, the measles wipes out that memory bank. That's not good. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is really bad. So <laughs> I didn't like know every that. single disease wow. that you built up resistance to, it deletes that entire um, resistance memory bank in your B cells. And that's why measles is extra bad. So please vaccinate. Don't get measles. Um, 
because it will it will destroy all your life's work in building up resistance. <laughs> I wonder how anti-vaxxers are going to be after this pandemic. Like, oh, they're going to take that. They're going to take that. I think this is going to yeah. change some minds. <laughs> well, what? How do you convince an anti-vaxxer to get a measles shot? I mean, I mean, well, short of a pandemic, let's hope that maybe this wakes them up a little bit. They were just living a little too cushy. I hope so too. Like, like you know, a lot of the argument. Um, that the vaccine company, uh, the the anti-vaxxers say is, oh, it's just a, a corporate scheme to get rich, or it's a it's big pharma scheme, or it's like these big billionaires in the world profiteering from it. These these you know world leaders sitting in their thrones. How can we profit? Let's start. Let's make people vaccinate. No, think about it. Who's dying? Like you have. Famous, famous people who are like dying, rich, super rich people who are dying. You have the prime minister, you have the Prince Charles, you have Tom Hanks, you have Idris Elba. You have like, everyone is getting it. It's like, um, it's, it's not like some conspiracy. Like, and look, we're shutting down. We're literally killing our economy uh, and, you know, spiking millions of unemployment and stock market tanking and the GDP crashing. That's not, in certain ways, that blows up any of this, like, corporate conspiracy theory about, uh, about the vaccines, that it was all a big for-profit scheme. No, no one's profiting from this vaccine right now. No one in their right mind they'll will figure it out. The they'll, they'll figure out some, some explanation for why not to take it. I wonder it. if yeah. scientists and people who do what you do, people like you, if you get personally offended when people are like, anti-vaxxers it's like we work yeah, it, on it is really in your face really your life's work yeah yeah it is it is um yeah luckily there's something called herd immunity that if we immunize enough people it's herd immunity is like for example if you're in a crowded room you're on this side of the room i'm on this far side um you have the virus i don't but if most of the people in the middle of the room most of them by most, I mean, depending on the virus, but like 80, 90% of them have uh, immunity, then the chance of that virus hop skipping through the room to me is low, right? But if only 50% of people have immunity, oh, that virus is still gonna hop, skip, find its way and to skip to me, right? So that's herd immunity, if enough people have immunity. So they, so, they have the luxury of being anti-vaxxers because we vaccinate. Yeah, they have the luxury that yeah. if we enough people vaccinate, nice. but yeah. but it's dropping so much in some places that hence you have these measles vaccine outbreaks again, these whooping cough pertussis. What, what do you think of that when you see that? You're like, there's there's there are outbreaks of measles and whooping cough. I mean, what honestly do you make of that? What I think it's really irresponsible. It's it's like how I see you know these people going on spring break in the middle of a pandemic, right? And having coughing parties and like, what coughing are you parties. doing? <laughs> but so, so, the, but so here's the problem is that the way you just described the virus to me unchecked is a horrific, is a, hor a really horrific uh, sight that nobody would want. These kids, they, they listen to the media, the president, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of people downplaying the severity and frankly, also on the ground, they're like, hey, I don't see anyone sick. Everything's good here. Everyone's fine. So it's, it's, I just, unfortunately, it's almost like a failure of, of imagination 
And it seems... Or just of education. Well, it seems like this kind of pandemic, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you have this global pandemic like once every 100 years. And uh, we... We these these kids and even I mean people most people living today can't tell you what it was like to live through the Spanish flu and so no, uh, how can that still alive. right I mean so who, I, I, how I who can really grasp that what we're dealing with yeah so I think first of all people there's thing in public health right now like vaccines normally uh, when they work like they're they're so effective like for example let's take us something that's more like. Uh, less abstract. If a like if a hundred people gets injured or run over by cars at this busy LA intersection, gosh, we better put in a crossing signal or a sky walking bridge, right? And then after you put in a crossing signal or a sky bridge, uh, the next year almost nobody gets run over at this intersection anymore. Uh, but we paid for, and then they're like, oh, we wasted all that money putting this stupid sky bridge and putting this stupid traffic light here. Oh, what were we doing? You know, such a waste. Um, but thing is, if, if public health interventions are successful, the whole point is nothing happens, right? And, and you, you are exactly right on the failure of imagination because, um, you know, people appreciate medicine because med doctors are like mechanics. Your car breaks down, your body breaks down, they fix it, give you some medicine, give you some surgery. And then, ah, thank you, doctor. You fixed my car. You fixed my body. Um, but in public health, you know, the whole point is that you don't even get sick. You don't get that our car accident. You don't get that measles. You don't get the heart attack that sends you to the ER in the first place. Mm. And everyone's blissfully ignorant. Right. And then no one says thank you. Who do I thank for put, for saving my life today? I, I could have well, been run over. Well, and they, it's not and like, well, even and worse yet, they they'll call you a fear monger exactly. when you're actually trying to exactly. So it's ways, a, if public health intervention was successful and everyone had heard my big alarmist um, uh, ringing of the whistle and the blowing the horn, um, and this epidemic was stopped in its track. They would have called me a fear monger because if public nothing health is happened. successful, the outcome is nothing happened. That's a tough job. Yeah, it's a tough job. And that's what's happening with the vaccine. Like, no one remembers measles. Whooping cough? What is that? Right. Polio? Right, what is right. that? No one has that anymore. It's like, you're making that up. No one's that sick. Right. <laughs> you know, it's the right. It's, it's, it's dangerous. Um, but but in a way, you know, maybe I think the world is kind of it seems like reacting fairly well to this pandemic compared to what the absolute worst case scenario could be is that uh, it seems like we even though we did get caught off guard and reacted slowly on the whole, the world is working together. Each country seems to be doing, you know, at its own pace, the relatively the right thing, even here in the United States. Every state is kind of, I mean, obviously some slower than others yeah. seem to be doing the right thing. And so it's just, uh, I mean, it seems much better than if this happened 100 years ago. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, in certain it, ways, it half the people can still work because they can work from home and work remotely, right? right? Um, uh, and, you know, I, 
you mentioned about, you know, every state has different like lockdowns. The problem is that um, we're also much more mobile than 100 years ago. We fly a lot. Our cars move way faster than horse and buggies than 100 years ago, right? Our trains are faster. Um, and so what happens is like in the old days, if you had an epidemic in Louisiana, it'll take a while before it goes to Alabama, Texas, New York, and all the other places. But now one spring break trip in Florida can spread all these spring breakers across the country. And we've actually seen cell phone data of, of these Miami spring breakers and their cell phone signals of where they went to after that weekend was over. Um, and the problem with the U.S. is like not every state has a good lockdown. So think of a ship. If a ship has 50 holes and like 25 of the states, 25 of the holes, were plugged, or even 30 or 40 of the holes were plugged with lockdowns, the ship is still sinking, right? Because the water will still get in from the other holes and still flood the interior of the country, interior of the ship. And so because we have no real borders in the US, you can't put a border in, uh, between uh, New York and New Jersey and New York and Connecticut. It's just, there's no such thing as a border there. Um, so you could have as tight of a lockdown but if your neighboring state does not have a lockdown, yeah. the ship is still sinking and taking on water through the other holes. And that's the problem right now. So are you, do you see a failure at the federal level to – is our efforts here in California um, wasted because of Florida's, um, for example, refusal to shut down their mm -hmm. state? Yeah, it's not entirely wasted. I would not say wasted but it is much less effective than it could be if we're all like on the team. Hey, I plug my hole, you plug your hole, and then we all stop this ship from sinking, right? And taking on more water. So which, which states are, are currently not locked down? Uh, for example, uh, Kansas. Kansas governor had ordered a lockdown, but the Republican legislature yesterday overthrew her lockdown. They overrode with a veto. So Kansas no longer has a lockdown. Huh. But I wonder if the people, do you know if the people there are, they're like, oh, well, cool. Let's all go ice skating, whatever they do in Kansas. Probably not ice skating. Um, are they, are, are the people there getting the message and observing? observing I'm not profile? sure in every state. Every state a little different. You know, and the other thing is even the states that do have lockdowns, the lockdown order is half a page. The waiver and exemptions is like two pages long. Right. Um, so you can visit grandmas, you can go fix your car. Uh, in California, by the way, there's also places where you can go, you know, see a dermatologist uh, because they're for profit and they are, you know, are still open. Um, are we doing enough here in America? He lives in Israel and um, I hear their stories of what's going on there. And it sounds way different, but it it's is nothing. so much smaller that, you know, it's different. How? What's, what's happening? In so, for example, it was just Passover now mm -hmm. and they knew that people are going to want to go do the Passover together with their family. So they closed all streets. Oh, so wow. No one can go anywhere because 
It's on a government level. They ordered everyone. Passover for for reference is like Chris, for people who don't it's know. It's like Christmas is mm, for the Jews. It's a big holiday. Not as fun, but it's not a way less fun. Yeah, <laughs> but it's the big one. Um, or for example, another example, my sister gave me. Um, she's at home with three kids, and she it's it gets really hard to entertain them. At some point, she just went downstairs to the street just to go outside get some fresh air. And a police officer came to her and asked, what, what is she doing outside? Why is she outside? And asked to see her ID and to make sure she really lives there in wow. that building. So in, in your opinion, uh, do you think the United States is doing enough to confront this? No, absolutely not. Our lockdowns are crappy. But I think, you know, a lockdowns, we can't have lockdowns forever, obviously. What we have to do is, uh, lockdowns, by the way, are mitigations. They're mitigations by definition, just, you know, a Band-Aid, you know. Um, what we really need to do is testing, 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 contact tracing, quarantine. And by testing right now, I don't mean like testing when people get to the hospital. Mm-hmm. There's so many testing right now. It's like New York City, they're so overwhelmed. They're only testing you if you get to the hospital. It's, it's really bad. Um, and so what you need to do is what I call frontier testing. At the frontier, the moment someone develops their first fever or chill or dry cough, immediately test them. And after you immediately test them, immediately contact trace where they've been, um, you know, who were they with. Is that even possible at the scope that we've gotten here in the United we have States? To, we have to slow it down, obviously. Now, in, in Singapore and Korea, they have mobile apps that tells you, right. you know, even if you don't know someone that you were in that person's vicinity, like you go to a restaurant, like you don't know who's at the next table next to you, but your mobile phone would know that, oh, this phone was in a proximity to that phone for an extended period of time. And so in their app, they would directly communicate and tell the authorities that this person was in vicinity of that person. No, years ago, I actually built this, um, you know, for all the people who thought that, you know, I'm not infectious disease. At when the uh, 2014 Ebola out- outbreak happened under Obama's watch, I was like, we have to build something like this because you're never going to know everyone that you cross paths with in a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to have something like you share your location and then if the next day, and it's saved, and next day, if you or I test positive, the, then you go back in the record history and find in a path, who did you cross paths with in the last seven days, right? And then, for example, if we, had, we didn't know each other in a restaurant and the location markers put us next to each other, um, you know, two days ago, then it would notify me with an alert uh, that, you know, oh, Eric was okay. in your vicinity two days ago. But two days later, you tested positive. And so that's how you do all like advanced contact tracing. And we might have to do that. Right. Yeah. So tell me, I just saw your knee. Are you wearing pants? Uh, no, I'm no. not. Okay. <laughs> I'm on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't expect to. I just saw your knee and I was like, oh, hello. I love it. Um, yeah, get comfortable. So let me ask you. Um, in, it seems, though, that in the United States, we are seeing a flattening of the curve. And we are seeing Dr. Fauci, 
who is cred- who seems very credible, right? Um, that um, he's lowering the death expectation. It's they by all accounts in the media, it seems to be working. Do you what do you for- forecast here? Because it sounds like you're saying, well, we're not doing enough, but it does seem like we're flattening the curve. So what do you what do you forecast here? First of all, we're not doing enough testing. So do are we sure that we're doing enough? Um, because uh, in many parts of the country, you know, our testing is so abysmal, it's less than India or Bangladesh. Right. You know? it, well, it's on par with them, basically. Even now? Oh, yeah. Oklahoma, really low. Um, you know, I saw a report, you can tell me, uh, just today that the federal government was going to stop funding state tests. Oh, yeah. Yep. What is that? They're, uh, they're using that, oh, states will take over it. The federal, you know, we want to give states more control, which is just another uh, cop-out for, for the federal government to cut, cut off the funding for that. I have no idea. It makes no sense. The argument is we want to give states right more I'm control. Very, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was perplexed by that, too. I mean, that just seems very dangerous and irresponsible. I don't get it. So the testing, here's the thing. We're not doing frontier testing. If I was, okay, the other thing is, A, how, okay, there's the cases that test positive. By the way, the test right now is only 50% accurate. It's only 50% sensitive. So, which means there's our a, best test there's a high false negative. There's a high false negative. Our best test oh right God. now is only 50% accurate? Is that is that true of of all the tests in the world? Because I heard that the 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 World Health Organization's test is like more accurate than that. It's always, you know, even in China, that the test was about thirty to seventy percent. Uh, thirty. To how is that helpful at all? I mean, how does that help? How is that better than anything? If you po- if you're positive, you're definitely positive. If you're negative, you could still be positive a few days later. Uh, but it's almost dangerous to send someone out right. and be like you're negative. Uh, they'll go out more emboldened and yeah. less cautious. I know. That's the thing. Like These tests are deceiving because it's, it's not just a property of the test. It's also the property of this virus. You know, it's, it's slow to build up its viral load sometimes. Mm-hmm. If you test early, you won't find it. You know? um, and so it's, it's kind of funky like that. And also, if, uh, some people don't sample it properly. Some people just sample it gently up the nose. You have to, it's a very long stick. It's like almost like a chopstick length. You have to put it in your upper nose and then twist it horizontal to go all the way back to like up back here. Oh my gosh, does it it hurt? And not everyone does it properly. And so. it sounds awful. And if you don't do it properly, you don't get a positive test. Because this virus lives in your nasal pharynx. Not so why is it that if somebody breathes on me, I get corona, but the, but the doctor's got to jam a rod all the way down my nose to get it? Breathe on you because you bring it up from there. You, know? <laughs> you cough, you talk. You, can you, you not cough use on your it? Yeah, can I cough cords. on this thing? You shake your vocal cords and you shake some uh, particles loose to make sound out of your mouth. You know? you know, I've also heard the ventilator is no walk in the park either that going on a ventilator is actually a very traumatic physical experience on the body. Is that true? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's huh. the ventil- And but sometimes they actually say you should use a lower pressure because they're using too high pressure on it. Um, what they do is they jam a tube into your lungs, right? So it's, it's not... 
jam it through your vocal. It's like the intubation trick is to get it through your vocal cords without destroying your vocal cords. Yeah. So that's why they have to get use that like long, like little curved thing. Are you unconscious when you're ventilated? Usually. <laughs> so it's so so it's pretty. You know, people say, "Oh, we need ventilated," but they don't understand how severe. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a life saving. Yeah, it's a life saving equipment. Yeah, I know. Um, look, this this virus is bad, um, and so we know the testing is imperfect. We're not doing frontier testing, like Korea, and you know. Um, and Iceland were, did so much testing, they did frontier testing and as well as asymptomatic testing, right? And so these kind of testing allows you to like nip it in the bud early, contact trace early, stop the spread. Because by the time you have shortness of breath and go into, you know, let's just say it's one week on average. Again, some people are longer than two weeks incubation, one week incubation on average. And then you have one week of fever and cough. And then on your second week, second and a half week, then you start developing shortness of breath. And then you go to the hospital, baby, like, you know, midway through that week. You already infected. And you've people. already been infecting right. so many other people, potentially. But if you had frontier testing, you would be able to nip these in a bud, find the contact tracing much earlier, and be able to stop it. Um, do, you so blame, do you blame China at all, the government of China? People are referring it to as, for example, the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus or this and that. Do you think that's an unfair characteristic? And do you think the Chinese government uh, could have done more to stop this? Do they hold any responsibility for this becoming a global pandemic? To some degree, I would say, like, in some way, this, you know, I'm looking at the infectious property of this epidemic. It is so damn infectious. Right. Now, that said... Uh, uh, I am definitely not happy with what China did because they try to silence Dr. Li Wenliang, the one who's the whistleblower. Mm -hmm. uh, they scagged him. They forced him to shut up. They punished him. And Why eventually they died. do that? They Why know. They, they that, know yeah. about viruses. I mean, yeah, sorry, they knew originated. about this virus. They oh, knew about this virus. In, so, in what like do you make of them? Of them? Well, what do you make of that response? It's just, they, they allowed it to spread, right? I mean, it's just no so one weird. Wants it, the, the, the instinct of government is, and politicians is, oh, no, no, no. Let's keep any bad news on the DL, mm -hmm. right? And early on, you, they think that if they keep it on DL, it's like, I'll take care of it behind the scenes. Right. We don't need to panic the public. We'll take care of it. I see. And it's kind of like, you know, think of like Navy SEALs. Uh, Navy SEALs go on these uh, clandestine missions, takes care of the things that the U.S. public does not want to know, right? right. Like, we took care of the terrorists. We don't need to tell people how close we, the, the terrorists got to getting the bomb, right? What, is, what is the downside of panicking the public? Like the, the panicking is the political outrage. A, you know, it's disruptive to society, but also it, it basically creates a, an air that, you know, these people are not... Um, I'm not competent. Oh, you let this happen. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes people have a tendency to blame mm -hmm. any bad thing on whoever's in charge at the moment. Mm -hmm. And some things are clearly out of control. Like, you know, for example, Katrina, you know, hurricanes like shit happens, right? But Katrina was a total botched thing. Uh, but early on in the Katrina, they try to actually cover up how badly they botched the Katrina, Hurricane Katrina. No, um, 
it is just a tendency for people to cover up their uh, their missteps so that you know it doesn't look politically bad. So you, you're saying that even though China made an effort to cover it up, this virus is so contagious. I mean, I, I, and the very nature of it, that it can infect people before symptoms show. I, I read something that, uh, you know, uh, half a million people had left Wuhan in a, in a diaspora around the world before China even closed its borders. So the probability of it getting out was, was high regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was bad. Um, there, there's no getting around it with it, but I do think China could have reacted sooner. And there's been many articles about it. So mm-hmm. could the China have reacted sooner? Yes. And could reacting sooner have uh, slowed down the epidemic? Yes. Mm-hmm. But would there still have been an epidemic? I still think there would have been an epidemic, maybe a smaller epidemic. Mm-hmm. And now are the Chinese numbers completely accurate? I doubt it. Right. You know, it's just like, are the but US are you, numbers are you, are you implying no, that um, if China had acted sooner, we would have a situation more akin to SARS where it kind of just disappeared eventually? Um, or do you think well, that SARS this is... Was, SARS was much easier to contain because it didn't have asymptomatic... Because um, you say there's be a, there, there'd be a much smaller pandemic. So I wonder what does that yeah. look like compared to what we're faced with today? Well, we had uh, you know, swine <clears> flu <throat> pandemic in 2000... And, um, we had the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. And, you know, we've had these. But again, some years they were more well-contained and uh, the H1N1 could have easily uh, overwhelmed the world as well had mm-hmm. we not reacted faster. And Ebola could have uh, been uh, not contained. And so the other thing is in WHO, like how much fault is WHO have? I think WHO, you know, by the way, most of the people who... I know so World who Health work at WHO. Organization for those who uh... World Health Organization. It's the it's like it's a body of the UN. It's a division of the UN, uh, focused on health. Right now, I recall you screaming at them to declare a global emergency. emergency. Yeah, and were they emergency. they were slow to the to the uh, draw as well. The, the like. tendency of of a lot of these leaders is uh, and scientific bodies is they don't act until they're absolutely certain. Mm-hmm. And but they're you know the preparedness head, Dr. Mike Ryan, actually has it right. If you want to be perfectly sure about something before you act, if you want to have all the facts and completely you know solid and as hard as rock certain before you act on something, you will always be too late. Mm-hmm. And so that's the other thing. Like in science, a lot of the you know the academia types like well. That was one preliminary study. We need confirmation. It wasn't peer reviewed. It needs to be uh, uh, confirmed by multiple studies and in many situations. Um, and of you know, we still don't know asymptomatic. You know, for example, WHO had declared we do not know about hu- certainty about human to human transmission. Right. Yeah. But there are so many anecdotes that clear made it clear it was pretty human to human. But they don't. Well, they, by the way, I remember they. Um... They had sent out a tweet saying the threat of a global pandemic is very low. And if you're outside Wuhan, you shouldn't be worrying about this. Right. That and was already in Washington. I remember that. And yeah. so I was like, wow, these, this, this, uh, they seem to really be failing mm. us in this moment. Because I think a lot of people, let's say people who are even distrustful of 
uh, what our government tells us or the Chinese government tells us would look to a, a body like World Health Organization and take what they say credibly. Like, and it's it's extremely frustrating because they it's it these big organizations are very bureaucratic and they're so conservative. They don't want to jump the gun on something, and um, it's really weird. Like, for example, France recently jumped the gun on something that told people in the middle of this epidemic, stop taking ibuprofen, stop taking Advil, Motrin, mm. stop it. Because uh, it suppresses your fever, yes, but actually suppressing your fever suppresses your inf inflammatory immune response and allows the epidemic to grow even faster. Mm. And so Fr the French ministry said, everybody stop taking ibuprofen, period, for any fever. Mm. And the WHO waffled, like, no, there's not enough evidence. And then they kind of wishy-washy gave an evidence. Like, if you're not taking it, you know, you don't try some other options first. But if you're already taking it, continue to take it. It's, it gives wishy-washy evidence. Well, France just went, stop taking it. And out of precaution. You know how, like, there's, like, this out of abundance of caution, we're going to do this other thing, right? This more aggressive. You have thing. to act fast. I mean, sometimes you need to <laughs> act decisively. Act without 100% certainty. Yeah. You have to trust your, like the, you have to read the tea leaves before it becomes a full tree, right? Yeah. Like you, you can't wait until all the signal is like, you know, blazing red uh, in a siren before you act, because by then it's already here. By the way, ibuprofen for people listening is safe to take, right? I read something that that that, that was found not to make it worse. This is where the grayness there is. Ah, <laughs> yeah. So the grayness. France says don't do it. WHO gave this measly answer that says if you're not taking it already, try other fever reducing medicines so like people should medicine. be people should be careful consuming ibuprofen right now if, are you asking me or if I'm i was the who i'm asking you i'm not a clinician but uh i i've uh, i've uh, you know i've i've studied ibuprofen for many years ibuprofen is known to cause heart attacks by the way just like biops um to some degree ibuprofen it, like the way i'm interpreting who's guidelines the way it, they're, they phrased it in this really weird, like cryptic way that, you know, you shouldn't take it if you should choose, you should try to take other things if you can. They didn't say don't take it. They say take other things if you can. And knowing that that's WHO, I would, I would probably, you know, follow the French advice and not take don't it. Don't take it. That's, that's as close as I'm not gonna... saying don't take it. I'm saying my gut instinct is I'm reading the, between the lines mm -hmm. and it, and it, WHO does have doubt, but they're trying to hedge their bets. Right. Uh, and so, like, it's like if someone asked me, does chloroquine work? We don't know for sure if it works, right? Are there mechanisms? Are there really good uh, case reports that it does work? Yes. At the same time, are there case reports that are people having extreme uh, reactions that the Swedish government says, stop we're not doing offering chloroquine for any patients in our Swedish hospitals. That's also very valid. So I think if you're going to ask my prediction, I think chloroquine probably works to a limited degree for some people, but in the trial that's going to come out someday, 
I bet there's going to be huge adverse reactions that could offset the benefits. It's do you like, find it? Do you find it bizarre how how heavily the president uh, tr- uh, President Trump is promoting this drug? It's or is, do you? He's just giving people hope. Do you find thing he's just giving hope, or is it just? It seems so bizarre for the president to be so strongly pushing one specific drug. Yeah, it is weird, but it's kind of like Trump just doesn't people read hope. everything out there. He he get he's it's it's like sound bites and like selective information. Trump wants to hear, Trump always wants to hear what he likes to hear, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's pretty obvious. You don't have to be political on the left or right. Everyone can tell. Well, it's comforting to know. Hey, there's oh, if you're listening to the president, there's this miracle treatment out there. Yeah, and the president probably so is told by someone. Oh, in this one report, it did work. And it's like oh, great, it does work. But he doesn't know how science works, in which, yeah. Okay, you know, you, it's like finding, there are people like James Burns, he lived to 100, smoked a cigar and like cigarette, all these cigarettes a day, and drank whiskey every day, and he lived to 100 years old. Sure. If you took that as an anecdote, and you can probably find oh, lots of people who smoked and lived to like 90 or 100, right? It's like, oh, look, he lived to 90 years old, 100 years old, and he smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. Are you going to find those people? Absolutely. But is that the overall picture? That's no, because overall picture is that, you know, smoking cigarettes causes heart, heart attacks and lung cancer and other cancers. Uh, but you're always going to find these extremes like, oh, wow, amazing. Look, a hundred years old person smoked a pack a day of cigarettes. I want to ask you, I want to zoom out a little bit because the whole concept of a virus is very bizarre. Can you tell me what, what is a virus? A virus is actually not alive it's a particle of either an rna or a dna with a code it's just a pure piece of a strip of code covered in a envelope okay which is uh by the way the envelope is built by the code inside it cannot replicate on its own it cannot reproduce it does not eat anything it does not poop anything all it does is it needs to find something, another host's cell factory so that it could slip in while the factory is running, you know, your own cell producing your own uh, proteins, slip its code in there and make the, the, the cells machinery read the code and make the virus's proteins. Which, and so the virus is not alive. It is just a piece of code gone wild it is it is no it does not think of its own it survives only to maximize its chance of slipping into another host and forcing the host to make its own proteins for it that seems so bizarre to me that it's not alive yet it has like when you when you when you think of bacteria for example it's living and it and it reproduces but how how can something not be alive yet seek to reproduce itself it's just very weird it doesn't seek it's just it's an it's a name it's a it's a function of evolution right if it (laughs) died if if it had a crappy piece of code or if it's junk code it's not going to go anywhere right Mm -hmm. it's not going to reproduce itself and it's going to die out so after billions and trillions of copies and billions and trillions of mutations 
it's going to tinker its, its, it, itself in a way that is readable by the host cell. And it's going to make, uh, uh, and this readable code is going to make something that will help it survive. Anything that selects for all these things will therefore live. That is life too. That is also in a way what we do, right? Like think about it. Our ancestors till now, we are here because someone gave birth to us. And um, if our ancestor was infertile, um, was castrated in battle, or had some sort of polycystic ovarian syndrome that made their ovaries infertile, we would not be here, right? We are the selective reason for this. And I think the best reason is, look, um, name the vitamin that has caused the most wars and strife in human civilization. Can you name it? The vitamin. Name a vitamin or mineral that has caused more war, strife, um, and human suffering than any other vitamin. I don't know. It's vitamin D. The reason is, the reason that Nordic people have lighter skin, Middle Eastern people have medium brown skin, and Africans have dark skin, is that the more north you go, the less sunlight you get, direct sunlight. That's why the, it's colder up in the Arctic Circle. But that's also why there are more blonde, fair-skinned, light-skinned people in Norway, Denmark, and Scotland, and Sweden than there are in Italy, in Turkey, and Greece, or Middle East. <laughs> the reason for that is the dark, the dark skin prevents you from making as much vitamin D. So... Uh, as these humans have uh, um, left out of Africa, which is, we can, we know that from DNA, uh, it's, it's in the code, you can't get away from that. And they migrated from the Middle East to Italy, to Northern Europe, to the Nordic countries. You're, they had to evolve lighter skin. Mm. And the only reason they did that was so that their skin can continue to make vitamin D from the sun. Because a dark skin in in uh, Norway would never make enough vitamin D in, in the Norwegian sunlight. Interesting. And so in certain ways, we evolved lighter skin and, and everything else from it. Racism, all these other kind of things that we identify with our, our, our tribal nature is because we evolved that. So the same reason our, we evolved lighter skin in northern latitudes and darker skin at the equator it is the same driving force because we need vitamin D. And if you don't evolve vitamin, lighter skin in northern latitudes, you will die because you will not get enough vitamin D. You will die. And over time, you select for only people who have enough light skin mutations that led to their survival in the Nordic countries. So and that, that's the same reason a virus survives because it just it, it knows nothing but random gibberish of codes. But out of all these random gibberish of mutations, it will select the best thing that will allow it to survive. And that, over time, becomes the perfect vibe. Just the total random number generator running random all the time. Random number generator, but is selected for survival by the forces right. around which it lives. But, but where does it come from? How does a virus, uh, how did the first virus come into being? I mean, where, where, where do these things come from? What is it? I mean, I just, I mean, you said, what is it? But like, but like, I mean, what, how did it come to be that these things are floating around? 
that that's that's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> you know, you could ask, also ask, how did we come to being from primordial soup? But it seems it's it seems almost so. It, it, I didn't. So the the origin of the virus is as mysterious as life itself, and it even seems to be almost like an antithesis of uh, life as we know it, almost. But it is part of the world we know it. We are the same evolutionary functions that drove us to be from, you know, quadrupedal to bipedal because bipedal people can run faster. Um, 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 uh, these same forces allow us to survive. And I think that is the ultimate evolutionary message, you know. Um, I unfortunately have to uh, leave soon. Okay, good. I'm coming to. I'm coming to. How much time do you have left? Uh, probably five minutes. So okay. let me ask you this then, briefly. Let's let's close it up here. What do you have? Any, uh, what are the misconceptions? What do people need to know from you right now to protect themselves? What are the most important things they need to do to make this better for them and and really as a, as uh, for the country? What do we need to know? I think what we need to know is look. Um, we need to do testing. We need to basically know that certain people have more susceptibility, right? If you are diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, any lung disease, any immuno immunity disease, you should be extra, extra careful in addition to if you're old because, you know, a lot of people are asymptomatic and healthy and mild, but if you have any of these things, I, like I said, a diabetic person has 17 times higher chance of being ICU emitted than someone who's not. And these are the realities. We have to know these risk factors. Uh, we, um, at the same time, this virus, you know, if we lift up the lockdown, we're going to have a resurgence. We're going to have to find a way to identify everyone who has been uh, previous built up immunity. Uh, that's via zero testing of virus antibodies. And there's really good evidence that if you, someone who has survived, uh, give donates their pl blood plasma to someone who's sick, it actually improves their health. Not a randomized trial yet, but good anecdotal evidence that a lot of people believe. And these things, basically, those who have an immunity can potentially go back to work someday. And we're going to find ways that if you are super healthy, zero risk factors, or you have immunity, we can find ways for these people to go back to work. And we can open restaurants and movies and movie theaters soon, but, um, but we have to find ways in which to do it slowly. We cannot mm. reopen, have sports games again and full capacity movie theaters again. Those are days of the past. Until we have a vaccine, we just simply cannot do that. And wow. so we will get through this. It will, we, it will change our society forever. The year 2020 will be the year in which our society evolves to a higher level of appreciation for universal health care, potentially, that, you know, actually giving that guy health care, make sure he doesn't get sick, is actually protects me and my family. I think people are finally waking up. I better pay for, uh, have government pay for his health care, his COVID, his treatment, so that he doesn't keep infecting me. Oh, oh, because he can't afford to go to the hospital and get or get tested, right? I think we'll have huge ramifications there in terms of a way we see a society. And I see a lot of conservatives coming around to that too. Um, Finally, I, I don't want to keep you too long. 
I want to ask you one last question because I know you're in a hurry, so I don't want to I don't want to mess up your schedule. Can I order out food? Yes. Um, I would sanitize it when it com- when it comes in your house. How? Uh, either with a bleach wipe or you can you there's UV wands by the way are really good. What? UV light kills the, the really? virus very quickly. Yo, I gotta get a UV wand. That One of those awesome. UV lights or UV yeah. lamps. Um, and the other thing is your food. A microwave instantly kills things. Microwave the food. If you if you want, don't how, order microwave your salad. But if you order a cooked food, how long do your food. how long do I need to microwave it? Uh, 15, 30 seconds should be enough. What about groceries? When you come back yes. home with groceries, this is the weird thing. Yeah. If you don't trust it, wash it with soap if you can. You know, like wash your melon with soap if you really want to, but. You obviously can't microwave your soap. You can use a UV wand over it if you really want to. Um, I mean, should you really wipe every bag, every package that you bring into the house? Look, a bag how of chips. OCD are you? Like how? <laughs> well, what's the risk level in your in your opinion? Is there a risk there? I or, would say, or... well, if you're immunocompromised, I would do that. Yeah. Okay. okay. If you're young and you don't have risk factors, okay, maybe you can, you know, be less gung ho hardcore. Okay, if I if I know. ordered a, a a shirt online and it arrived, can I wear it? Yeah, the virus <laughs> does not survive that long. The virus okay. does not survive longer than three days on on. on this is good information. Plastics yeah. and uh, and stainless steel, one day on cardboard and paper. So oh. and again, high temperature and humidity always kills it faster. Okay. So heat is your friend. You know, is the summer going to wipe? Is the summer going to reduce the the spread? To some degree, but again, you know, summer here is winter down in uh, southern uh, hemisphere. So there's right. no, it doesn't help yeah. any. So the thing is, the yeah. other thing is, we're indoor people. We go to com- Comic Con conventions and hotel meetings and workplaces that are air conditioned in the summer. It, it makes no difference. Um, so, uh, in 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 many ways, you know, it's. It will not go away. It will. We'll have a resurgence in the fall. I'm pretty sure, but hopefully by then we'll have a plan. We'll have good. So everyone's going to work from home testing. in 2021. That's the future. The vaccines will hopefully arrive in 12 to 18 months, which means hopefully February 2021 earliest, but maybe spring of 2021. So how do we make a? How do we make a billions of vaccines? I guess we've already done it. We've so already we- kind of ramped up ready to we've like bill gates has donated billions of dollars he's saying we're building seven factories ready to build whichever vaccine is successful wow. nice so, that's so. nice good job bill yeah also you know like uh you know you know uh uh ceo of twitter right oh, jack, jack dorsey yeah jack yeah. dorsey he donated he, a billion dollars which is 28 percent of his wealth yes that's ballsy that's because he's not yeah, zuckerberg or bezos but he's still um, donating 28 percent of his wealth if, if we want to donate what is your opinion a good place to donate to donate blood oh. that's right now really really yes can i buy can i buy can i pay poor people to go donate blood no, they need your blood. Especially if you survive the virus, they really need your blood someday. Uh-huh. Right, 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 right. Whenever they're ready for that. Um, but right you now, can, donate blood. I think that's the. Can I pay Zach to go donate blood? Is that just as good? But is it safe to go and donate blood when you need to be quarantined? If, if you don't have it, this is the vague thing. So, 
I, there's no clear answers. There's no black and white answers in this epidemic. So, well, Dr. everyone just be safe. We've, we've, we've said be, it all. Be smart. We've done it all. We've talked about it all. We've learned. We've listened. Uh, th I thank you so much for being here with us yes. and sharing your knowledge with us. Um, what do you have next? BBC? Yeah, the BBC. They're, they're calling me on, on, on Skype at the same time. Oh, so. Okay. All right, well, you better take that call, yeah. Well, thank you yeah. for well, joining hey, us. I really enjoyed it. Uh, let's, uh, let's hopefully meet up and do a an in-person one on the flip side one of the right side. when you can fly again impossible <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's a good point well good okay well thank you very much thank you for spreading information and doing all these interviews and everything i know you're probably busy as hell but uh you're doing a public service so thank you very much we really thank appreciate you, you. Right. take all it right. easy thank you all right Best bye. Life. bye, bye.